Hey, everybody, this is Tug Coker. And Catherine Wild Coker. Hey, and we're here from the Long Finish, and we're here to say if you have a couple minutes free during this, well, shelter in place out here in California to rate, review, and subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean the world to Catherine and myself. We're having a great time making the show. We love hearing from you and we love hearing your thoughts and what you think about the show. So if you have an opportunity to rate, review, give us five stars. We'd love it. Our kids would like us more. They would. They, yeah. Every morning they ask, Mommy, how many stars? Did you get a new five-star review? And we say, no, we didn't. Not today. So help us change that and give us a quick rating, five-star review. And a subscription to The Long Finish. We've got a great episode today. I'm really excited to talk about it. So enjoy. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome to another episode of The Long Finish. I'm your host, Tug Coker, and I'm here as always with my wife and co-host, Catherine Weil Coker. How are you doing tonight, Catherine? I'm great. How are you? I'm so good. So good. We made it through another week. Esther's is still open, right? We're still open. The patio is there. Yep, so... Day to day. It really is. That's our life, day to day. Yep. And today we had a day off and went to the beach as a family. So it's pretty good. Which was amazing because you're not the biggest beach person. I don't care for the beach, but I had, <laughs> just I up, had a fun It's a straight up time. gossip. You're, you're the real housewives. Your enemy is the beach. <laughs> I don't care for you, beach. Beach and sushi versus me. Oh my I gosh. Don't, don't say the sushi thing on this show. I'm Everyone's going to come after you. Don't, don't. You're the only person in America, definitely in California, who doesn't. <sighs> to ed- edit that out. Edit no, that no, out. no. Oh, that's God. staying in. I don't want people to know. But really, I don't. It's a texture thing, people. Watermelon, throw that in there, too. Wow. Don't care for it. That's another episode. <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> okay. But yes, we did spend the day at the beach and see some friends and stay socially distanced. But if nothing else, we showed you that it is possible to go down there once we get there. I think that's your problem, right? Like, it's just the getting of the stuff to go to the beach. It's the getting of the stuff to go to the beach is a real struggle. And it's also just the sand, you know, just not a huge fan of the sand. But seeing the kids just in heaven down there makes it worth it. I agree with you. The schlepping is not fun, but that's parenting. That's parenting. You know, it's true. Parenting is schlepping. Give me that t-shirt. So anyway, thank you to everyone for listening to episode 41 of The Long Finish. This is episode 41, and we've got a great episode. We taped an interview last week with a superstar in the wine world. Our guest, Jordan Salcedo. She is an accomplished sommelier. She's worked at some of the best restaurants in New York City. She was the wine director for the Momofoku Group, and... Now she is a mom and she is the founder of Ramona, which is the most delicious, crushable wine spritzer around. She's also just such a lovely lady. So graceful and funny and down to earth when we're talking to her. And I met her a few years ago when she came to Esther's with her husband, Robert Bohr, and I had brought in wines that she was making Well, she still is making wines, but I had brought those into the store and we got a little bit to talking and I had a just connection with her right away and I'd always been such a fan, but that's what started our friendship. Okay, before we get into the interview, I just want to say that I forgot one big question to ask Jordan, which was, why did you call the beverage you created Ramona? So I emailed her and this is what she said. Ah, Ramona was the name of my little sister's childhood alter ego. She was a big Beverly Cleary fan. For me, Ramona felt like an alter ego to the rest of my career in that moment. The Master Psalm exam, opening Momofoku Co., hence the name. It basically was her alter ego to the rest of her fine dining traditional sommelier track record. I think this interview is chock full of fun stuff. So without further ado, let's dig into Jordan Salcedo's journey in wine. The journey we're looking at today is someone doing a Zoom outside. Yeah. So where are you as you're doing 
this Zoom I'm, with us. Oh my goodness. So I'm on Long Island right now. We rented a house near Sag Harbor. I think it's technically in Sag Harbor. So um, we sort of moved out of the city in March. When it became clear that COVID was, was going to be a problem, we thought we were you know, leaving for a couple weeks. And actually a, a friend had a house that they were not using. They were sort of living in somewhere else. So for the first three months, we lived somewhere else in this um, house that wasn't ours. And we were so happy to be able to do that. Because um, normally we live in like a, a pretty small loft in Manhattan and we have two children. We have a four-year-old son, Henry, and then we also have, he's now an eight-month-old son, but he was four months old when we when we moved out um, at the beginning of COVID, so. I'm excited because you, there's a lot of things in common between the three of us. The first thing, I'm, I, I'm happy to have you here because we had a debate on the podcast last week as to what age was the worst age of kids to be looking over during quarantine, and I, Ooh said four-year-old, because we have a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. And I said, that's the perfect storm of terrible age. Yeah. Catherine says teenagers would probably be the worst. I age. think 14 and 16 would be worse. We'll have, a, we'll have a, you know, a winemaker on to sort of defend the 14-year-old yeah. at some point. But defend for me the four-year-old <laughs> and the eight-month-old eight argument. Yeah. Um. So I think, like, yeah, to your point, the, the easy one is Ronan, who is um, – now he's eight months, but you know, this sort of four to eight month period is, is actually really easy. And in a weird way, I feel like quite guilty for saying this, but part of me feels really fortunate because it's sort of like a mandatory, mandatory extended maternity leave. Not that we really get those because we all work on things that we care about all the time, but in a way where it was like, I wasn't worried that I was going to be on a plane. And as, as I was doing, I mean, I, of course, we, we travel a lot. And I, I had to be on a plane in February a little bit. And, and it, there's just the stress because you're nursing, but you're pumping. It's like the whole, it's been really nice not to have to worry about that piece and just sort of get this extra snuggle time. But with our four-year-old, he constantly, in fact, I should, I should walk the camera inside and show you his schedule. Uh, but what we've done is we, we uh, have these little illustrated cards and he get, has a pom-pom jar. And every time he does a thing that's on his schedule, then he gets a pom-pom. And when he, he needs five, at first it was like, we'll fill up the pom-pom jar and then he'll get a, a reward. But we realized that was too, too much focus. So instead it's five pom-poms means one half hour of quiet choice, which is the iPad. But yeah, so it's like, basically like the pom-pom bank account. And that was very helpful for us. For me, I'll speak for myself. And I think for the whole family, because it sort of gave us a way to incentivize him to do things we needed him to do in order to get any work done at all. Because the work piece is hard. And I think with four, I don't know, because teenagers, it's like, I feel like with teenagers, probably no one wants to be home altogether. Or maybe the parents are happy to, I, I don't know. I, I hear you on that. We'll have to find somebody that can defend that because we're, yeah. we don't want to be speaking for parents. So to, with, uh, with I teenagers. don't want to speak to them. It just seems so psychologically intense. Oh, yeah. Like, at oh, least yeah. with a four-year-old, you know, you can come up with this stuff and they can buy into it for well, a, the, at least with, a limited With a four-year-old, the psychological intensity comes on my end. It's, like I'm true. dealing with the I'm dealing with the psychological mostly... intensity. My, let, let me tell you about my morning. My, my four-year-old decided to throw a, a, a we have a Roby like a frisbee with a hole in it. Okay. And his job he, he doesn't like to throw it to me. He likes to throw it into a tree and have me get it. So, <laughs> so today he threw it into a tree and it's stuck in probably the hardest place he's ever thrown it. So I had to go to a soccer like a soccer coach and ask him if I could borrow like a five-foot rod. I climbed up in the tree and fished it out. So I'm just not even really a parent. I'm just like, I'm like a butler. I'm like a, I'm a frisbee butler. I feel like Robert, my husband, would say the same thing. Actually, like, like Robert really like ends up sort of doing the errands that that Henry generates for him. Whereas, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm the bad parent sometimes because I'm like, no, 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 no. We will do. We will. We will address this at parent time. But it is not parent time yet. I just, well, I don't know. It's like sometimes just for my own mental sanity, I have to gate, gate time a little bit. And of course, a lot of the rest of the day, like today I learned about dolphins. There are, I think, 36 different species, spotted dolphins, white-sided dolphins. It's like, you know, whatever comes up from whatever book he's reading. I feel like there's, there's so much 
there's just so much that it's also fun to relearn these things or to even learn them for the first time. But it is it is a roller coaster. You mentioned talking about navigating work and family life in the quarantine, you know, in 2020, let's say. So I'm going to turn this question to both of you. You know, you were both working moms. So Jordan, what's your experience been like trying to navigate that difference? I think Catherine and I talked about it obviously at length, but curious to hear your thoughts on what it's been like navigating those two worlds. Oh, I think I actually, I know this is like not till the end, but I was listening to this podcast that I love. Um, I don't love. Do don't, don't spoil inspiration <laughs> now. All right, all right, all right, all right. I will say this without giving it, without, without giving anything away. I am a night person and I have learned that about myself. And so the good and the bad thing for me is that I am very productive from like 9 30 PM to 1 AM. Oh like, that's me. You, you, That's you. Yeah. I'm, I'm you in the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. also I have to get up early, I'm sure, which I, I, I that too. <laughs> so it's like the thing that suffers is sleep. You know, we all have to find out what works for us, but I do feel like I can sort of play catch up at night for the most part. And then with calls, we are super lucky, I will say this, and I can't express how lucky we are. We have an amazing, amazing sort of third parent for Ronan and Henry. We met Lamo in January and she ended up moving in with us in March. So that has been really, really incredible as far as work-life balance over oh, here. Man. But you really need did. that person. You just need, and I mean, yes. not just for your kids to, to learn to be in love with someone else, but also like as a buffer for your own relationship. Even yes. beyond work, just like, yes. okay, can we just have some piece yes. that isn't you on, me yes. on, like a little yes. tiny space. And yes. we did not have any help the first two months, um, but then our nanny started coming back a few days a week and uh, obviously- Our domestic engineer. He, yeah, we call him the, our domestic the, engineer. Yeah. His name is Fernando, <laughs> and Fernando is with the kids now, That's and great. he is- everything he's a it. domestic engineer that's genius this is this is what we what he wanted to be called when we talked about him on the podcast and you know he's been with us mm -hmm. since our, our son was like four months our four was four months old so i love this yeah, so much totally understand um what you're saying but um let's go ahead and transition now into tell the audience what we're, we're drinking tonight and then we'll get into a little bit about your story in the one world okay all right so we are drinking ramona we're both drinking grapefruit, which is the original. Uh, the sort of the grapefruit is the one that that sort of started it all, and the inspiration was sort of almost like an Aperol spritz. But if an Aperol spritz could be organic and portable in a can, I remember going to Italy, and it was like some boat or some ferry. Before you get on the ferry, you go to the the bodega, effectively, and. You can get an Aperol spritz in these cute little bottles. And, and so for me, I've never been a beer person. And at the time, which was back in 2000, the idea started in 2015. We launched our test batch in 2016. And I just felt like as a non-beer person who, who worked in this fine wine space and who loved wine, but there's a time and a place for wine. And I felt like anything for these casual moments, you sort of had to trade in on your value system or one one with a one one who sort of studied wine and might have have opinions about a value system had to trade in on them if they were if they were to drink something in a can or something for a casual moment and it was sort of before cans became the thing that they are now i feel like now there there's so many cans yeah so that's sort of how it all started it was like yeah very i, I was also like on the master sommelier train at the time and we had were opening momofuku co we had just opened that. So my, my life was very fine wine, very structured, very, um, yeah, very regimented, very intense. And I, I always like intensity, no complaints there, but it was more like, what is it that I actually want to drink? And like, sometimes you just want something refreshing and light and delicious. And I guess, obviously, delicious is very subjective, but that was also very important to me. It's sort of like, why, why is that not possible when I... At, like as somebody who does not find beer delicious. And again, I, I know that many people do and, and I often wish I were one of those people, but yeah, it just felt like there was a, this sort of big gaping hole 
in the market for a thing that I personally wanted to drink, which was something that I believe tasted delicious and that was made from organically grown grapes. Um, Sicily is where we ended up sourcing them because of their 3,000 year viticultural history in which they have always grown grapes without pesticides or fungicides or herbicides because you don't really need them down there. Um, And then was able to source. We tinkered around a lot, or I tinkered around a lot with the recipe. But I just want to jump on quickly. How do you how do you come to t- determine where? Did you look around other regions? I mean, were you always thinking Sicily? How did that come to pass? Okay. No. All right. So part of it was I've long appreciated the value that Italy offers, and in particular Sicily, I think because because they're just not organized i think like that's my own personal hypothesis is like from a government standpoint they never got organized in the way that say burgundy did so like burgundy they got they have you know very um, thousands of years ago they figured out all right grand cru is the best and we're going to charge the most money for that and then next is premier cru and then next is village and then you have the bourgogne rouge and the bourgogne blanc and then you know your there's your past two grand and your aligote and that's sort of And so there's a very much a a hierarchy of greatness. And I think that France then, that's one model. Of course, there's Bordeaux and every region has its own system, but it was was organized in a way that you could very clearly say, this is the best and this is great. and, And this is sort of less great, so you don't have to pay as much for it. And this is even less great than that. But it was very clear in the eye of the consumer what they were paying for. And maybe I say that because I, I sort of got in like my, my introduction to a career in wine happened through, happened through Burgundy. But the more I studied, you look at these different regions that like, like the Mosul then sort of adopts a similar process or other parts of like, you're looking at Piedmont now, which is sort of starting to um, label more by, um, by crew or by vineyard. And in Sicily, there's just, I would say like Mount Etna's maybe a, a little bit of a discrepancy, like they, Mount Etna now has some structure and, and some prestige, but in general, the point of Sicilian wine has long been um, just a, a delicious product that is part of something to consume every day, and it has been grown organically or biodynamically with these principles that now we make a big deal of, but that that have never changed throughout much of Sicily, and I started to recognize that when I would go down, um, so before Ramona, I had, which still exists, I just don't really have, I don't focus on it, um, but a company called Bellis. The point of Bellis for me, or my goal with Bellis was to be able to co-produce wine. So I would go to uh, three different wineries in Italy and we would make wine. Uh, We made a frappato from Sicily. We made a Tuscan a Sangiovese-based blend from um, Tuscany, and then a Valentina from uh, Campania. They're um, all so great, by the way, and we've had all those in the shop and featured in Esther's Wine Club, and so, yes. Thank you guys so much. You guys have such a, you're, I mean, I'm always just so impressed and so happy to be in the shop, but also so, uh, I always learn so much from your creations, and I'm very, very honored that the wines have been part of the program. So thank you for that. And I was actually like the, the sort of idea for Ramona had been in my head for years before it happened. And then I happened to be in, I guess I was in Campania when I decided to sort of go forward with this. And the moment for deciding to, to sort of embark on Ramona was this moment, actually, that's like quite apt for this podcast, but it was uh, the, the way that the master sommelier exam used to be structured. You pass your advance, you, you do all this stuff, and then you, you get invited to take the master's exam and you get three shots so, so you, to, to pass all three parts. So it wasn't the thing where you have to take the theory first. And Anyway, so I, I get in and I happen to be part of the last class where they, where they organize it that way, and I pass the blind tasting. And so then at, right after that year, they changed the rules. They said, okay, we're going to do it differently. Now, uh, now you have to pass theory first. But I was sort of grandfathered into the old way of doing things. So I had passed my blind tasting. Then the second year, I didn't pass anything. And then the third year, which was this year where I happened to, where Ramona, it was the same year of Ramona and really, and really um, 
resulted in Ramona's birth, so to speak. It was my very last year taking this exam and I knew this was the year I was gonna pass because I was on the floor at Co every night. I was like doing all of the, I was on a Skype study session every morning. Like my life was study in the morning and open the restaurant at night and study at night and, and sort of rinse and repeat for a few months and I was on it. Like I ended up taking the, the theory exam and it was the, the only time it was ever like easy for me. And I was like, oh my God, that must, that's it. Like, all right, okay, now, now service. And service that year was something, so service for the exam is very different than like service in real life. It's more like a service obstacle course. So it was helpful that I was actually working service every single night. Um, but also I, I knew I was on my game that year. Like we ended up getting a James Beard semifinalist nomination for service for co. And I like all of the people I knew who were master sommeliers, I would say, will you do this mock service exam for me? So I, I was like prepared for the obstacle course. And then the, the day comes and I take the exam and the, the theory goes really well. And then I like bunker down in my room before the service. And then I'm like, this is the year, you know, I'm not gonna, no distractions, no nothing. And I take service and it's like, I don't run out of time. The service feels fun. I don't flub questions. And I was like, that, I like, this is very different than the other service exams I've taken. I wonder if I passed. Oh, the other thing was that I said I wanted to take it one last time and then we could start a family. And I was like, no, we have to, like, this has to happen first. And then I can start thinking about all these other things, which is called a rival fallacy, as I just learned yesterday when we get to information. Yeah, it's called a rival fallacy. Like, oh, once I do this, then everything will be happy. Like, then it'll be good. Oh, then life will come down. Oh, then, then I'll be ready or yeah, it's part of that right. in the four-year-old education, right? You're, that was part of the four-year-old stuff. <laughs> I feel like I learned so much from Henry, like much more than, than I did from studying for the master's degree exam. A rival uh, fallacy, mom, is it? <laughs> well, so like the long story short, I end up not, I pass theory, I don't pass service because um, there's one table, I pass two of the three tables and the table I don't pass is full of people who have never seen me work in a restaurant. It's fine. But they've decided that I don't seem like myself to them that day. So, and that was really a tough pill to swallow because it was like, wow. Oh my gosh. So that was tough because it's like, I don't even know what to do with this feedback. Because in the two other times I'd taken and failed, it was like, okay, you didn't do X, Y, or Z. And it's like, okay, you're right. I, I, didn't, I didn't do X, Y, or Z. I will do that. I'll do that in the future. I'll do that in my daily life. That will make me a better sommelier. But this was just such bizarre feedback that like at first it was a gut punch. And then, and then actually I had to get on a plane. I got to get on the plane and I, I got to get on a plane to go to a friend's wedding. And the wedding happened to be in Italy. And then I like feel a little funky. Not, not, not even, I just like, I, I was like, I, I fast forward to like the day of the wedding and I realized I'm pregnant with Henry, who's now four. And that was like, again, not the plan. The plan was past the exam. So it was, there was this huge upheaval in my psyche because I was going to do these things in this order yeah. and that's how it was going to go. And then this was like, nope, you're not. And, and I, and I, of course, like, I was like, can I take the exam in London? Because then I, I, I would really love to take this exam before I have a newborn. And they were like, no, now London is just too different. Like two years ago, it was fine, but now it's too different. Okay. Okay, great. So it, it was this amazing example of the universe deciding what happens and then you react to it. And so that was actually why Ramona exists because it was sort of in this mindset of, all right, you thought you were going to do these things and your life was supposed to go this way and follow this track, but it isn't. So what do you want to do with that? Your life is going to change in eight months. It's going to be different forever. What do you want to do in the next eight months? Um, and that is why I think it was sort of like this confluence of events and the fact that I'd always sort of wanted to do this, whatever it was going to be called, a thing that you could drink in casual moments that was organic and tasted delicious and wasn't beer. 
And so, um, and that is where the idea for Ramona came from. And because I was in Italy and I had a couple of Bellis meetings after that, I then sort of decided that this would be the time to start tasting base wine samples and really sort of start to explore that idea. So that is, that is one of the reasons why Italy, although prior to that, I had done some tinkering with like New York state Riesling and, but at the end of the day, organic was really important to me. And it's, I, it's very hard to find affordable organic wine, certainly in New York, but in California, really in anywhere in the U.S. It's just, it's very expensive. You pay a premium to, to buy organic grapes and it didn't make sense for the price point that I wanted to be able to achieve. Um, and that was, that was sort of why we decided Italy because the, the quality was there first and foremost and the taste and then also um, yeah, just the value system. Well, that's amazing. I feel like we answered Such a lot a good of story. Yeah, a lot it's of ridiculous. a lot of ans questions answered in that story. So thank you. For I mean, that. it's fun. I must be so satisfying to tell that story now. When you're going through it, it's obviously like every moment you're like, this can't possibly be happening. But probably now, I don't know. Like everything makes sense, and hindsight's twenty twenty, I guess. But it's such a great story. And you guys are the same way. Like, I feel like we're all going to look back at COVID and be like, remember when we, when we had an 18 month old and a four month old and we were parenting during the pandemic before we had our domestic engineer. And yet we still did all of the things that we're we wanted to do here together. Yes. <laughs> Regrettably. Yes. No, it's not going well. No, I'm, kid <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But really? I mean, it is a miracle. But comedy equals tragedy plus time. Yeah. I think that's what it is. <laughs> comedy equals tragedy plus time. So, um, yeah, a few years from now, we'll get into it and, uh, and laugh. But uh, right now, we're in the tragedy part. <laughs> um, so you, you, you answered a, a lot of things I wanted to bring up. But, I, but I, you two have things in common. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey uh, on your way up to Ramona. But both of you have the commonality of being from Colorado. Which I think it's interesting for a person who doesn't like beer being that microbrews are born, it seems like, from Colorado. You probably tried them all. Um, <laughs> well, I'd love to I don't hear... think I could even name one. I, th I should be able to. I, there was a time where it was on a flashcard, but I, I don't know. Does, is Dogfish Head from Colorado? I don't... I like the Catholic. Your dad would know. Please, please delete this part of the punch. No, no, no. <laughs> this is 100% saying that. And someone in Colorado is going to email us and be like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So, Two of them are going to be my sisters. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. So, I, you know, I'd love to hear from you about your journey to where you are now and some of the places that you, which, for whom you've worked. Yeah, how did you get into wine? Yes. All right. How did I get into wine? I got into wine. All right. So I wanted to write about food and restaurants. Was what I, that's sort of what I thought I would do. And then I moved to New York after college. Um, and there was a recession and I knew, I sort of moved with the assumption that like the universe would figure it out, you know, which was, which was irresponsible back then, I would say with like very few skills and an English literature degree with a philosophy minor, it was an irresponsible decision. So I see that in retrospect <laughs> and, um, and I ended up like, I think I got this job offer eventually at this company, which was which was not the right fit. So it, it was sort of short lived. But in the meantime, I took a resume. I had always worked in hospitality, even in Colorado. Like I started as a barista, and then there was a, a Cherry Creek Grill, which was like part of the Houston's group. So I was a hostess and then a server, and um, so I had a little bit of experience. And I brought my resume to a few places in the neighborhood. One of them hired me. And that ended up turning into a job where I was then, I was like a manager, which I shouldn't have been, but I was. I think mean, other people sort of kept leaving and I was there. And also then my part of my job became organizing these wine tastings. So that was interesting to me. What restaurant was that? Called Topo. And it was a very interesting place, which I will not go into in detail, but I will just say it was, it was like one of those places where like you read about in books that's like full of every unhealthy thing. So I could tell it was like a wrong fit from a value system standpoint. And I was actually, I, I got out of that. I ended up then hostessing at WD50. And that was my eye-opening moment. But, oh, it, but yeah, I thought, of course. That's really cool. 
How and cool. It was so cool. It was the first time that I had ever heard of yuzu or pomelo or like cocoa nibs. Actually, I think I knew from cocoa nibs from my barista days, but there were so many new ingredients that, and then combined in this way. And the chef, Wiley Dufresne, was so very cerebral, but also so inclusive. And so even as a hostess, I felt like I was very much participating in this moment that he was creating and met some really amazing people, actually one of whom was my husband, who, wow. yes, so he, we went on some dates, and, and, and then I ended up moving back to Colorado, but he, at the time, had a restaurant called Washington Park, and so he would invite me to dinner, and he'd be like, oh, just swing by for a snack, and he would open these bottles, and I knew a little bit about wine, from the wine tastings that I had done. And I had lived in Italy in college, but I, I actually knew nothing about wine. I just had sometimes chosen to drink it in college instead of cheap beer. So that was sort of the extent. And then I started tasting these wines that I had no business tasting. And I don't actually even know what they were, but it would be like, I'm sure he opened stuff like Vega Sicilia or some beautiful Brunello de Montalcinos. And I don't know that he opened Burgundy then. But I started to get a sense of like, for me, and this is like why I love wine to this day, one of the many reasons, but the, the most powerful is that it is this connection. It is this connective tissue that, that brings together these different interests and people from different backgrounds and, you know, whether you're coming to it from a from a philosophy standpoint or a sociology standpoint or geology or geography, you know, you can sort of find ways to connect over wine. And that that was very clear when he started opening these bottles. And then it's just sort of this amazing conversation starter. And so I think I was sort of wooed by wine in that way, but it also made me realize that it's and sort of reflect a little bit that my grandfather, who I, whom I had never met, they're on my dad's side, um, was an Italian immigrant. I never met him. He died when my dad was 13, but he came over on the boat when he was 10. And the thing that I'm sure everyone in their neighborhood did was make wine in their basement. And so my dad's one memory that he ever shares about his own father is how they would make wine together. So in this other way, I guess I started, and, and my dad throughout my childhood would always offer us sips of wine. He would always you know, have some sort of mediocre bottle of Chateauneuf to pop on hand or a Chianti or whatever. It was, he, he never studied it in the way that now he's like a big wine snob and it's, it's you know, I open his cellar when we go home for Christmas. I was like, what are you doing with Bachelet? Like, what are you doing with Chave Hermitage? <laughs> like, where are these things even coming from? Um, but he loves it. And, but at the time it was just sort of like wine was important to him and therefore like sort of subconsciously wine was important to me. But then it was also this thing that you could sort of really sink your teeth into. And I guess the thing that I learned about wine is like once I went back to New York after moving away, I went back um, I, I, I wrote a little bit in Colorado and went to culinary school, but really with the intention of getting back to New York to cook. And that was sort of like culinary school for me was like the way back to New York. And so I ended up getting to cook at restaurant Danielle and it was Danielle who said at the end of, so, you know, I didn't really interact with him much throughout the process, but Danielle was a place that like, valued caring. It was like, if you care, like Danielle can tell and he rewards that. And, and, and he also is a chef that loved wine. And so there would be sometimes, I remember there was this cookbook shop and I went on my day off. It was called Bonnie Slotnik Cookbooks. And it was like these old cookbooks that aren't in print anymore. And I, I picked one up and I brought it to work one day. And it just so happened. This is like the universe connecting those dots for you. But it was like, just so happened that um, I was, at the time, I was the bass rapper. Oh, wait, everyone's going to hold on. Let's see. Okay, so this, this cookbook, and it was called, it was actually called Great French Chefs. And... Um, and my job at the time, I was the bass wrapper, and it was um, this black bass puppet in a red wine Shiraz sauce, which was like very cutting edge, because you're of course not supposed to pair red wine with white fish. Um, and then anyway, Danielle, like I would always also go to the kitchen at the end of the night because I was a cook making like you know no money, and I love desserts, and so the pastry team would put out all their desserts at the end of the night and I would like you know go and snack on the apple lasagna before walking home wow. and I 
And I went at one particular night and I had the book with me and Danielle would sometimes be entertaining guests in the lounge and he would always bring in like half of, and it was like, I want to say it was like 98 Jaboulet La Chapelle. It was something great from the Rhone. I think that was the bottle, but he brings it in and he was like, oh, who are you? And I was like, I'm Jordan. I'm your bass rapper. And he's like, that's nice. What are you reading? And I showed him and he said, cool, can I look at it? And he's very curious. So he, he flips through and he finds on some page, this dish was red mullet with potato scales from Paul Bocuse. And it happens to be the dish that he made when he was staging at Bocuse before he opened Cafe Boulou. And so it's like the dish that has inspired the dish that I'm now making in his kitchen every night. And anyway, that led to a, a sort of connection. And he, and then he just would always think of me when any wine event was coming up because anyway, our conversation led to wine. Um, and so he invited me to work this thing called the La Polay uh, de Neige. And it was in 2006, it was January, 2006. And, um, and he, yeah, so it, long story short, I get to work this very small wine event in Colorado and there are a bunch of amazing Burgundian winemakers there. And, and he's the one who says to me, you really love wine. You should, you should try and line up harvest here with one of these guys before, before this whole thing ends. And so I, I asked someone and they said, no, we, we actually interviewed for this two years in advance, but you should ask that guy. It's his last year at, the, at his domain. He's retiring. He'll totally say yes. And by the way, it's like, you're going to have the best meals if you, if you go there anyway. So that was um, Demendel Arlo, and that was really for me like the thing that kicked it all off many years ago. But it, you know, I mean, you're from Colorado too, so it's sort of like being outside and when you're not cooped up in a city all the time. But there's something I think very similar about being outside in a vineyard um, to growing up outdoors or to growing up in a culture where being outdoors is is important and it's part of the lifestyle. It's it's a different set of yeah, I guess like lifestyle values, but it, I think there's so, there's there's a connection for sure. You have some similarities because I had my birthday at WD50. Oh, 2005, I think. Five? Yeah, yeah, five. What? Yeah, and uh, Catherine worked in New York, basically, and, and was kind of put in management positions as well, so. Very early, yeah. I, do, you, do you ever go to August on Bleecker between West yes. and Charles? Yes, I went there with my mom before starting my job at Danielle. She helped me move in, and it was so incredibly charming. Wait, you worked in August? I worked there just a few months after it opened, and I worked there for two years. Oh, my goodness. I started, uh, that's where I got... I mean, I had been a barista, you know, in mm -hmm. high school and college, but that's really where I got my start. And I was a very bad server. And in four months, I was a manager, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, and, and they fired the manager. And so like, I was running the place. It was so ridiculous, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I was an English major in college too. That's how I got into wine because I loved the stories and I connected to it. Oh, I couldn't remember all the esoteric information, but like when someone would tell me about the story of, I mean, Tompia is really the first I remember because of, of Lulu and her, just her, the stories about her and her entertaining. And that was a connection for me. I'm like, oh, these people and their stories behind these yes, boxes. Totally. I can sell that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know anything about great but I could tell you the story and I could sell you the story. And, and the grape is not what sells the wine. Like, uh, yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's like the more you know and the more you're willing to dive into the story, the more compelling it is when you're actually, you're in that moment with whomever it is that's, that's sitting down at that table. Like, yeah, yes. Not, the technical stuff, it was like, for me, it will come and go sometimes into it and sometimes I remember and sometimes not, but I always can connect to the people and the place. And I love what you said about, you know, wine having all these different intersections. And I remember Laura Manick talking about that when I asked her how she got into wine. And she was like, well, I love travel and I love drinking wine and I love people and I love history and I love geography and I was like 
I mention her because we moved to LA in 2006, but we moved back to New York in 2012 because he was working on Broadway. And I, I didn't have a job and I went to Corpus every Friday and Monday to do this. So I would ask her questions and, and that's. I'm that's so sad we didn't know each other then. Cause I feel like we would have like hit it off immediately. And what was it? So that was 2012. Okay. So we have a new guest on the podcast. We have an eight month old on. So if you hear any small sounds, it's coming from an eight year old. Eight month old. Did I say an eight year old? Yeah. An eight month old. Yeah. <laughs> In quarantine, you age that quickly. You had this amazing experience, which it sounds like in Burgundy. And does that prompt you to sort of move from the kitchen into the wine space? Yes. What is that, when does that journey take place? No, 100%. So that happened sort of quickly. I guess once I had worked Harvest, it was just, yeah, those one of those sort of experiences where, where, where things started to click, I guess. So there was, I, I took a job as a captain at a restaurant called Veritas, and and it was um, a good chance to to start tasting more wines. And it was the crazy era of 2007, so it was pre-crash of 2008. There were a bunch of wine auctions going on, and this was a an, um, restaurant where a lot of like pre-auction dinners would happen, and then a lot of other pre-auction dinners would happen at Crew, which was Robert's restaurant. And at the time. This was sort of the year we actually got engaged. So we, we were sort of, were dating, but we were very much in the wooing period still. And wine was very, no, I mean, it was for all the reasons we've just discussed. It was so, it was so easy to fall in love with and want to learn everything I could about. Um, I got my first sommelier job. It was supposed to be part-time. It was um, for the summer of, this must be two days a week, um, summer of 2007. And then the um, person who was supposed to be the full-time summer sommelier, like no called, no showed Memorial Day weekend. And so that was, that was like my lucky break um, was getting to work as a sommelier at this place called Nick Antonius, which is out in East Hampton. Well, and the woman who hired me is a woman named Bonnie Munchen. She was the GM for many, many years. She, I don't know her age, but she has two full, she has grandsons who are, I think heading to college at this point, or like at least one of them is. So she was this, and is still this incredible uh, mentor where it was like, here's a woman who has a family, works in the restaurant world, and just sort of has figured out life on her terms and defines happiness for herself in this way that was so lovely. And she gave me a break. um, Let me let me get this two day a week job. And then she was the one who's like, well, it looks like now you're going to be a sommelier five days a week and you can be a server one day a week. And Catherine, I'm also a horrible server. On nights where I was working as the server, then people like would flag me down to tell me how cold their food was or how angry at this or that they were. And I mean, of course, it's like a whole bunch of entitled Hampton Steiners. Whereas when I was working with wine, everything else is the same except for job title. It was like anyone who was talking to me was talking to me because they wanted to, because they wanted to be. Um, and it was just this, it was very, it was so different. So I guess that for me, like helped sort of crystallize that this was a path I wanted to explore but I was hesitant because Robert was in wine and I felt like this is a thing that he does not a thing that I do even though I love it it's really his space and I didn't want to I didn't want to encroach on that I felt like I wanted to have sort of different play sandboxes to play in and I, I think that's when the revelation that my grandfather made wine and that that's the connection I have to my family that's sort of the one link that unites my dad's side of the family is wine. It's like wine doesn't belong to one person or another and wine isn't one thing. Wine is wine is so many things and wine is the reasons I fell in love with wine were were so different from and and some of them overlapped, but it, you know it's like wine is this extraordinary connective tissue as we were talking about earlier and, and once I realized that for myself that opened up my own future for myself, I guess. That's great. And you ultimately became the, correct me if I'm wrong, the beverage director with the Momofoku group, correct? Yes. yes. When, did so, that, when did that happen? That happened. So after Nick and Tony's, I um, took a job as a sommelier at 11 Madison Park. And every, every fall, I kept working Harvest. So 06 through 012, I worked Harvest in Burgundy with the exception of 2011, 
we opened a restaurant. So I worked at in Patagonia, like just sort of the, the opposite season down at Bodega Chakra. And I just kept, I guess, so, and, and it was really 11 Madison Park where I started to study for the Master Sommelier exam. My boss at, at the time was a guy named John Reagan, who is an extraordinary sommelier and wine professional and educator. And he's a polarizing guy. He's hysterically funny. Many people who work for him will not tell you that because he's also very difficult to work for. He's one of those people that's it's, it's really tough and he will let you know every single mistake that you make before you make it and and you will feel really bad and guilty. Uh, but I, for me, I feel like it was, I'm, I'm so grateful to have had that that chance to work there and because I just learned a lot. So that was, that was a, I guess, 07, 08. I took a break and worked at another place called Guild, the New York Palace, as a cocktail. It was like sommelier and bar director briefly and went back to EMP. And then I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a break from wine. I'm going to study for the exam and I'm going to focus on Bellis. And then ended up working an event in California, in Healdsburg, at our friend wine, uh, friend's winery, and David Chang was cooking that night, but I, of course, I, I definitely did not expect that he would be, and I just, in my head, decided, actually, this is like another good family nugget. I was supposed to open a restaurant, and this is like the universe being magical. I was supposed to open a restaurant, and this chef partner, who I was going to be a chef partner with, there were like some gray areas in this contract, and I was really lucky. I, I, my dad is an attorney, so I sent this contract to him, and he's like, this is actually a bad contract. But I would clear up a couple things before you move forward with this. For example, active partnership is never defined. You should figure that out. What if you were to get pregnant and go on maternity leave? So like, I bring that up and then there were like five other examples, but I bring that one up first because I'm like, that, this is such a softball. This will be like a gentle way into the conversation. And, um, and he says to me, oh, you can't get pregnant. You, we have to put a clause in there that says you won't get pregnant for two years or else you lose your equity. And my jaw dropped and I was like, it was like the kind of thing that someone says where it's like, maybe that's legal. Is that legal? Is that, is that legal? If it is, is that okay? Am I like overreacting here? So it turns out it is legal. It's also highly discriminatory, but it was a very good sign to be like, no, it's like, I don't, I don't need this. I need to figure out something else. So I, I decided I'm walking away from restaurants, never going to do restaurants. Again. This is Roman. And then like 10 days later, there's this dinner with Dave and Dave is like, Hey, what are you doing right now with your life? And I'm like, I'm actually taking, I'm, I'm actually like not going to do restaurants anymore, but I'm doing these other things. And he's like, that's cool. I'm looking for a beverage director for all of my restaurants. <laughs> could we, are you sure you're out of restaurants for good? Or could we have a conversation? And that was how our conversation started. And so we went back and forth for a few different conversations and he is so fun to work for. And I would credit like the creative freedom that resulted in Ramona, like the thought process for Ramona existing to the framework that he has created in his restaurant group, which is just very different than like the 11 Madison Park model was very top down. I will say this. You want to hear the essence of the long finish? You're hearing it this today. It. Yeah. You're hearing one of our guests <laughs> answer our questions while holding their eight month old uh, and drinking Ramona. So Not this is it task. in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> Not easy. We we applaud you. Yeah. So we know what it takes. Thank you for your patience. But you bring up a couple of things I found interesting tonight that I just want to touch on. One question before we head back to Ramona, which is the idea of women in wine. What has your experience been? And Catherine, what has your experience been working as a woman in the wine world? And uh, do you have any advice for any other any women who are on the come up? about how they can navigate the space. It's different now for me because I don't I have less interaction at the table, but there definitely used to be a little bit of a oh, are you the sommelier or no, send over the wine person, you know, when I would come to the table, even if I was wearing a blazer or a suit or because I've always worked in atmospheres that are not fine dining, just a little bit more casual. But even if I'm wearing the blazer, it's still like you you know, and then I sort of ease them and start talking to them and things go well. But I've always looked young for my age. And I think almost that has been more of a that's detriment. A, that's, a that's a flex right there. Now I don't. <laughs> I <laughs> 10 years during the last I, I bet you get carded often. Yeah. 
Well, I the mean, point being, the point being, yeah. they wouldn't totally. take me seriously. Totally, totally. I was just or they're probably hitting on you, and they're like, let me talk to that sommelier again. Exactly, there was that, and it was just like, okay, you know, yeah. and I, I never, I'm just not someone who gets angry or upset with those moments. I just, I always sort of smooth them over, and, you know, I'm trying to work on that now as a person who just says, no, don't say that to me, <laughs> but... I think that, you know, just as a buyer now, like when I'm mostly dealing with people electronically over email, um, just kind of in my industry in the, in, in Los Angeles, I don't feel that prejudice at all as a woman, but certainly I did at the table, but I was just, that was such a different experience. And I don't know if things are changing or it's just that I'm in a different place in my career. I think probably both are true. How about you? Well, I think just listening to you share your story, I feel like you and I are both in two of the more progressive cities in the country. We're in Los Angeles and New York. And and so we, I, I think there's maybe a sort of, I guess, um, yeah, an, an inclusivity that that has not yet permeated everywhere, but I do think it's changing for the better. I, I agree with, with you in that. I think, I think another thing, I don't know exactly how to say this, but I think one thing that appears to be another commonality, I think when, when you do decide to have a family as well, you need the right partner. And, and I think we have that. I know that just the fact that you two do this podcast together and also have a family and, and um, Robert, my husband is an amazing partner as well. And I think it's like, you know, you need to start from a place of mutual respect at home and then, and then you have the opportunity, you as in we or one has the opportunity to sort of, yeah, to, to, to get to live out the value system and the life that we believe is is the life that we want and obviously work hard for it and there are days that are easier and days that are harder but I think from a the other thing I guess that was important to me or that became important probably after that sort of equity don't have a child conversation was like oh it's important to be a partner or to be an owner because when when we're part of those conversations when when we're part of the leadership I, I think it's like there's I, I also do see a fair amount of tokenism I think in in wine like oh we as this like I remember I worked at a restaurant group that no longer exists and and it was like a restaurant group where I, I took the job because it offered me it's like a group that doesn't exist but it was the first time I wrote a wine program from top to bottom and I could tell that I didn't agree with the ownership value system. And after a year of working there, there were so many moments that I was so disgusted to be part of that group that I, I vowed to never say yes to a, a job that was at such distinct odds with my value system ever again. But also it took years of working in places to sort of A, define for myself what that was, and also B, have the opportunities to make the choices like that. I mean, I, I was I was fortunate to be at a place where I could work at a variety of places and therefore choose you know where I could say yes and where I could say no to working but there are a lot of places where it's sort of like you're the female sommelier and like I had to wear heels for example like you have to wear heels here and that was like my job but it was for me it was like the thing that I believe led to Momofuku because had I not written and run a program before even at that restaurant group I would not have had the skills that I needed to then oversee multiple beverage programs at Momofuku. I think what you say is so right, but like about finding that the right culture of the place that you are going to thrive in, you know, yep. and, and how you're going to be able to do that as yourself authentically and, and rise up. Because if you're doing it in a place that ultimately you've got problems with and you don't believe in, it's just not going to happen. And yep. And there's no, it just doesn't matter what you do. It's not going to help. You have to be in a place that supports you. And, and I think the other thing that you mentioned about being, having ownership is just, it is all the difference, like it, in terms of wanting to have a family and for men too, but also, you know, 
on the other hand, men don't breastfeed. And so that is very time consuming. Yes, it is. And, and, and you can say what you want, but breastfeeding is so time consuming. <laughs> and so having flexibility and having a company that understands that about, or you have an ownership in and you can choose the flexible hours and you can work at your night hours that work for you. That is everything. That is, that is what, um, will allow women to be the greatest thing that they can be is that flexibility. And right now that is what ownership is. Yeah. And I just want to say like when I, I think there is a lot of, so a lot of room for equality in the wine world. But I, when I look at the, the two of you and it's exciting for me to see people take ownership and hopefully there's only more of that to come. But I want to hit on one thing as we transition back to the, 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 the tail end of the interview, which is back to Ramona. And one, one word you used a lot is values. We talk about values a lot. One thing I learned today is that Ramona is organic, which is awesome. We have to do a better job on future packaging. The package will communicate that better. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the packaging because we always talk about packaging, you know, being uh, Esther's being, you know, a, a hybrid model um, for retail. So just quick thoughts on your packaging. What, what was the, the inspiration behind it? And how many iterations did you go through before you landed on things that you like? Oh my goodness. Okay, so the inspiration, once we got there, then the iterations were sort of smaller, but the inspiration was the Russian constructivist movement. And there was, uh, the woman who designed the label is a woman named Claudia Wu. She was the art director and the co-founder, creative director, I guess, of Cherry Bomb Magazine when it launched. And I just loved her aesthetic and sort of cold approached her at a jubilee. And as we spoke about the goal of Ramona or the vision for it, which was sort of to be accessible to anyone, but also to not compromise on value systems, to sort of bring the quality of, of a fine wine value system, but, but to anyone who wanted to for casual moments. Sort yeah. of whether, uh, and the, yeah, the hope is like if you study wine that you will appreciate some of the decisions we've made. If you don't study wine, and you don't care, you'll drink it because you think it's delicious. Exactly. Yeah. For us, it's almost three o'clock. This is exactly what I want to have. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> and the new one is coming your way soon. It's not landed yet in California, but you will get, it will be landing on your, on your doorstep in the next few days. It is the dry grapefruit, which is 5% alcohol. So it's very easy to like drink and, and drink without any guilt at all. Yeah, we should say that this one is currently 7% alcohol, but there's a new new line coming at 5%, which is great. And last couple of questions. I ask you two questions every episode. So I'm asking the creator of the beverage, what kind of pairing do you put together with Ramona? What, what are you snacking on when you... Okay, lately, Banya Cauda is my thing. And I, don't, I don't know what that is. Please tell okay. me what that is. All right, and the only reason I would eat, actually, that's like such a quarantine thing to say because never, ever do I ever have time to make bagnacata, but it's this Piedmontese, it's basically this, it means warm bath, and it's like basically olive oil, anchovies, garlic, and it like simmers down for a really long time, and then you eat it with raw, you eat it with crudite. It's basically crudite with like an anchovy sauce, and bagnacata is, for me, it's like one of those dishes that I, I love so much. I remember having it in Italy, like in Northern Italy, and it's, it's just, it's vegetables in warm, garlicky anchovies, and it's so yummy, but it's also really easy to drink with Ramona. So that, I would say that, I would say crudite is like the, the easier way of saying that. If I'm poolside, what snack do I want to get out of the vending machine and crush with a Ramona? Yes, I would say potato chips are great with Ramona. Corn chips are great with Ramona. Chips and salsa in general, also great with Ramona. Sometimes fish tacos. The other thing I want to ask you is, you're able to find Ramona in most metropolitan areas, I'm assuming, but how can we guide our listeners to finding Ramona beverages, whether they're in big cities or, or maybe some other places they need to travel. How, how, do we, how do we find the wine? You can go to drinkramona.com. You can find Ramona there. You will be able to find Ramona at Whole Foods with the exclusion of Southern California. There's like a very, um, not the Southern California by uh, region did not bring on Ramona, but every other region did. So that will be in August and September. Awesome. Uh, so that's, that's exciting. We're excited about that. And then Sad for Southern California, but again, that's where Esther's comes oh, in. Exactly. We're happy about Please. that. So, yeah. <laughs> do it here. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and I'm trying to think of what else. Yeah, between drinkramona.com, Esther's and Whole Foods, uh, oh, and Sprouts. And Air, Air, Airwan, Airwan picked um, it up. Well, it's a perfect summertime drink. We're buying it by the, the handful. So go out and get yours today. Uh, but now we like to end each episode by what is inspiring us this week. And I know you've been holding on to this podcast that you've wanted to share since the beginning of this podcast. So go ahead and lay it on us now. Okay. What is right. this podcast that's been inspiring you? Here, here's, there, it's a two-part thing. It's inspiring because, because I guess like the process of deciding to listen to it, where it was like, no, no, I'm just going to carve out this window because I know that I'm a much happier person when I can listen to podcasts. And sometimes it's hard to do that. So I just sort of decided that I would start building in time to listen to podcasts, more podcasts. And so that was part of it was just sort of deciding to do it and then putting it in the calendar. Like I'm going for a walk and it's going to sort of kill two birds with one stone. And it was just half an hour, but, but like a half an hour outside with some vitamin D and a podcast was very revelatory for me. And then this one that I happened to be listening to was um, a woman named Marie Forleo, who's from New Jersey. She has the, I think it's called the Marie, the Marie TV podcast, but she has a book called Everything is Figureoutable, which I just love that mindset. And it was very inspiring to me when I was building Ramona, but just in general, sort of, yeah, her belief system is that everything is figureoutable. Whatever challenge it is, you can just figure it out. And she was interviewing Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Happiness Project and some other books as well. And so she was actually the one who, I, we sort of covered a little tiny bit of it, but it was um, the arrival fallacy and that I guess for me has been very it's like a, it's worth remembering and absorbing for me as, as somebody who sort of will say like oh I'll just do that later I'll just go swimming with my children later or I'll give them attention you know it's like you can always just sort of do that later after the to-do list is done but at the end of the day there there really is no later or the or later comes and goes and and the thing that that I had hoped to do didn't happen unless you add purpose so I guess like the the sort of reimagining of priorities and the remembering of you know we we all you know let's just bring up family because I, you know, this is a place where we can talk about that but it's a, all the things are important right and so it's like remembering that all the things are important and we don't do all the things all the time every day but we can do a little bit of all the things that are important to us every day and and the other part of it that also came up on this was that everyone learns and processes and sort of organizes themselves differently. And the example that came up that I know we touched on a little bit was like night person versus morning person. And there apparently are these two kinds of people. So like the people that are not morning people of which I am not. And there were many years of my life where I felt guilty about not being a morning person. Like, oh, if only I got up earlier and worked out earlier or whatever. But I guess it's... It, People, some people are and some people are not, and just sort of knowing who we are and giving ourselves the space to learn or grow and do in the way that we are programmed to do. So remind us of the name of the podcast because we'll, we'll check this out. I'll send it over. Yeah, it's on the Marie Forleo podcast, and uh, her guest was Gretchen Rubin. Marie Forleo uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, sounds awesome. R U B I N. Um, I'll, I'll send it over. Please do. And I'm going to go next. Okay. And so I just, uh, been listening to this album recently that's for all ages. Okay. And I'm going to butcher this name, but it's from, an, maybe you've heard of this. It's kind of making waves in the sort of art circles, but it's from a nun, an Ethiopian mm -hmm. nun. Whoa. His name is Imahoy Sagi Mariam Gibru. Now, she has one album out. It's on Spotify. It's called, uh, e uh, it's from the collection of Ethiopique. This is volume 21. It's basically, a, it's like a jazz sort of light Afro pop album, all instrumental. She's a nun. She's born in 1923. She's still alive. Whoa. This is Whoa. amazing. And this album is like, put it on if you're like trying to be contemplative or you want to, you're, you're doing some writing or whatever. This album yes. is phenomenal. So I'm going to put this on our Instagram, which is uh, uh, the long finish on Instagram or TLF pod on Twitter. I'll put a picture of this again. I'm going to say her name again and, and badly. Imahoy Sagi Mariam Gibru. She was, she's an Ethiopian nun who plays piano, composes music, 
classically trained, and it's fantastic. So cool. So put that on on your Spotify and have fun. That's my inspiration for the week. Catherine, what do you have? I just came from, you know, what you were saying about carving out time to listen to podcasts, Jordan, and, and I have really not done that, I don't know, in five years. I don't know. It's been a while. <laughs> But every now and again, I do. And of course, one that I really like is the Brene Brown podcast. And that I was catching up a few weeks ago when I was able to go out for a little walk. And I listened to the episode where she inter interviews Glennon Doyle on her book that came out a few months ago called Untamed. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about women in the wine world, but just women in this society, in our culture. The interview blew my mind. The interview made me just rethink so many things and sob and just these two women, the way they're talking to each other about being a woman, it just will blow your mind. I cannot wait to read this book. Although I have said to my dearest friends, Please read this book with me, but let's wait till COVID is over because otherwise I think that I'll just probably, this will end me <laughs> because it's such a like deep, you know, her deep journey into coming to her core and what becoming untamed and what that was and what that might free another woman to do. And so anyway, the, the interview on the Brene Brown podcast with Glennon Doyle is just really fantastic. And I invite men and other women to listen to it and just see what you think. And if you're brave enough, read that book too, which I will be someday. <laughs> Thank you for that. That is going to be on my podcast list. The, the next time I go for a walk, that is what I will listen to. I am so excited to hear what you think. Well, we'll put all three of these on our Instagram and our Twitter, the long finish uh, on Instagram, and uh, we can show you what we're talking about. But Jordan, we know you've been outside for the last 90 minutes talking to us. You've been holding some kids. You've been keeping kids out of a pool. So thank you for taking the time to, you know, enlighten us on your journey in the wine world. Talk to us about Ramona. We love what you're making. Keep doing it. And just thank you for taking the time to thank talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. This is so wonderful. I love how you're putting out such wonderful inspiration into the universe but also thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation and for the conversations you're having with so many others okay that's it episode 41 is in the books thank you again to jordan saucedo for taking the time to <laughs> hold her kids while she was inter being interviewed by us it was amazing had a wonderful time with her last week and great for you all to hear it. If you have any questions or thoughts about the conversation, please be sure to hit us up. Catherine, where can they find you and Long Finish on social media? You can find me at Catherine Wild Coker on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find The Long Finish at The Long Finish on Instagram and Facebook. You can find The Long Finish on Twitter at TLF Pod. You can find me at Tug Coker on Twitter and Instagram. I really enjoyed this episode. I hope we have more fun interviews over the rest of the summer. Uh, we should have an all new episode next week, so stay tuned for that. Until then, everybody, go out there, be safe, be happy, practice social distancing, please. And until then, happy drinking. Ciao.